Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 99 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Dean Kuntz author of numerous number one New York Times bestsellers, including Odd Hours, Relentless, What the Night Knows, and 77 Shadow Street. His newest book, Innocence, is about a strange young man who must keep his face hidden at all times, because just the sight of him inspires murderous rage in everyone he meets. Then stick around after the interview as guest geeks John Langan and Grady Hendricks join us to discuss subterranean horrors. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Dean Kuntz. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me there. All right. And so your new book is called Innocence, and it's the story of a young man named Addison Goodhart. You want to just tell us about him? Well, Addison calls himself one of the hidden that lives uh, among us that we do not see. And in his case, he and somebody who was sort of a father figure to him live in a major metropolis and live basically underground in uh, secret rooms, and they go by way of subway tunnels and uh, storm drains and no secret entrances to all the major buildings in the city. And when they go above ground, it's only in the latest hour of the night or when there's a a major snowstorm, as is the case in this book, or a a thunderstorm where most people prefer not to be out and about. Uh, And from the day he was born, Addison has been a target because there's something about him when people see him They're so repelled by him, by his face, by his eyes, by his hands, that they are repulsed, and then they try to kill him. Um, And the same is true of the man who took him in. So they're among this group that uh, they call together the hidden. And this is the story of Addison when he runs into a young woman in a library is being pursued by a killer. And they take to each other in a strange way. But as as, uh, he says... He's unable to allow anyone to look at him, so he wears a hoodie, and she has social phobia and can't allow anyone to touch her or be too near to her in certain ways. And so he says, uh, well, uh, we uh, we bonded by our eccentricities. Uh, that we're uh, both such outsiders that uh, we become uh, bonded because we're it's us against the world, essentially. And it's a story of what happens to them in the course of pretty much a couple of days with some flashbacks to his earlier life. Yeah, and I mean, speaking of those flashbacks, uh, even before this book came out, you released a short story called Wilderness that's sort of a teaser for this book. Uh, You want to tell us about that? Yeah, that was strange. I was supposed to write another story that was going to be a teaser for this book and do it as an e-book. And the next thing I knew, it it was turning into a full-length novel. It it didn't involve Addison and... uh, so I got into a panic and I said to Bantam, this is not going to work as a teaser because it's going to end up being, you know, a hundred thousand words long. <laughs> and, uh, so I suddenly had to put that aside and go to a story, uh, that did involve Addison. And, uh, so it, it's the day that the book, uh, uh, he leaves home. The book doesn't open on that day, but he goes back. He tells you about the day his mother threw him out when, um, even the midwife who gave him birth tried to kill him, but his mother tolerated him, uh, but only for about eight years. And at that point, she couldn't handle it anymore, having him around or in the house or the sight of him. And uh, 
So this is a story of what happened the day he left home for his mother. He's encountered a hunter in the woods, which is referenced in the book. But in the book, you you don't know what happened between him and the hunter, except he was shot at. Uh, so I decided there was a way to spin up a little story out of it. And uh, it's uh, it's a difficult thing to do because you don't want to give away anything that's in the book. But uh, inevitably, you risk that. But I think this one doesn't give away anything important and can be read actually before you read the novel or after. It sort of stands either way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then the Kirkus Review for Innocence, it says that this is something different from Mr. Kuntz's imagination. Uh, do you agree with that? Do you see this as a departure for you? Well, you know, it's uh, you don't always know if the if I love the reviewer for being so kind, <laughs> but you're never sure if the reviewer is familiar with everything you've done. And I think, in a curious way, yes, this is different. Even my publisher felt tone felt it was a book that would break out to a bigger audience, even. And uh, uh, but I look at it and say, well, it's sort of an evolution. You know, like I look at books like. Uh, 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 fear nothing or cease the night, then um, from the corner of his eye or one door away from heaven, and then the odd Thomas book. And I can see a progression that sort of led almost inevitably to this. But uh, but then again, it was probably the most fun writing experience I've ever had. I never had a moment in it where I was beating my head against the wall, which is the usual process. <laughs> And you mentioned that Addison lives in the sewers beneath the city, and the sewers are described in an enormous amount of detail and, and felt very convincing to me. Did you do a lot of research into sewers to, to write this book? <laughs> Fortunately, I didn't have to go into sewers. <laughs> I, I could uh, find out what lies beneath the major metropolitan area by a lot of other research means and, and how those things work, uh, how the storm drains work, for instance, related to the subway tunnels, which are higher, which are lower, how are they connected when they are connected and that sort of thing. Uh, when I was a kid in high school and college, uh, I hated research. I hated going to the library and doing that. That was the thing most got on my nerves. So I've all said this before, so nobody can arrest me for it now. It's too many years late. But uh, I just always made up my research with uh, with teachers and stuff. And I'd write a paper and I'd cite all these books. But the books didn't exist. I made up the titles and the authors' names and everything else. And I did that through college and as well as in high school and never got caught at it. <laughs> and what struck me as strange when I got to a certain point in my writing career, the thing I think I like most about uh, writing now is the research I'm forced to do. And uh, I guess that just means I've grown up. Uh-huh. And so you mentioned that the other main character in this book is this teenage girl, Gwyneth. Um, could you just say a little bit more about her, about her appearance and so on? Yeah, she she's taken up a goth look, um, but it's a little different goth look. It's based on um, I'm trying to think, I don't think this gives anything away. It's based on uh, the appearance of a, a particular marionette that as the story unfolds you find out has a, a very dark past the, the, the creator of this marionette has a very dark past and she's made herself up basically to put distance between herself and everybody she encounters to make herself look dangerous so that nobody might um, speak to her because she has this social phobia and she doesn't like to speak to people or be touched and uh, and so this has one been one of her Ways. And she's kind of alone in the world because she, her father has been murdered 
some time before all this opens, and she's had to live on her own, uh, sort of like Addison, but in a different way. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine, given the sort of horror elements of a lot of your books, that you would have a lot of fans who are kind of goth, uh, in, into the goth subculture. Have you had much uh, exposure to that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, we just were at a, um, a goth wedding here a few weeks ago, oh, neat. <laughs> which is uh, completely different. But uh, uh, so, yeah, we get I get mail and the readers are really sweet and that they all they want you to know what they look like frequently. And so we get letters and uh, I've got readers of everything from teenage goth to 90 year old retirees. <laughs> <laughs> and it gives you a, a, an indication of the spectrum of your readership, which is really valuable. Uh, I mean, could you say a bit more about what is a goth wedding like? Well, everybody was dressed in black, including the grandmother. Uh, <laughs> I don't think the grandmother appreciated the wedding, but, uh, <laughs> but she was dressed all in black, and uh, the bride was wearing, I don't know what this dress is called. It's a Spanish dress that has layers of uh, ruffles that expand out and out, um, and that uh, uh, you usually see as sometimes in the beginning of a flamenco dance somebody will be wearing this before they go to something slinkier and uh, but it was entirely in black and uh, it was it was its own thing <laughs> <laughs> uh all right great and you mentioned that gwyneth's father was murdered and he was murdered in a very interesting way it was with poisonous honey uh is that a real is that a real thing it, it easily, uh, what I say in the book was his honey was contaminated with oleander, uh, toxins. Oleander is a shrub, a flowering shrub that grows in a number of states. Generally, they have to be the warmer states or desert states. But it can grow part of the season in a number of others. And it's, uh, if bees were to feed only on oleander and produce honey, the honey would kill you. Um, and her father ate this honey, but it was not that the bees um, fed only on oleander blooms uh, or took only the pollen of oleander blooms, but that somebody injected that into a jar of otherwise healthy honey. Um, and uh, I will give no more of that away. <laughs> How did you come across that fact that uh, oleander would be poisonous if bees were to make honey out of it? There's a number of things that can be bad if bees make honey from it because uh, it, it has toxic flowers. Oleander... I, somewhere way back in the past, or maybe only six or seven books ago, who knows, uh, that's, it all blurs after a while. I had somebody killed with oleander toxin, and, uh, when I was researching poisons back then, I was fascinated that here was this shrub that in California on some freeways is grown along the side of the highway in great big hedges, and that one leaf of it or one flower of it can kill you. It's that toxic. It's the number six toxicity, which is the highest toxicity level. And uh, so that has always stuck in my mind and been intriguing to me. Not that I'm planning to poison anyone. <laughs> but uh, occasionally, because people are not aware of its toxicity, uh, they uh, or they chop it up and throw it in a salad to see what it'll taste like and it kills them or it has been that beekeepers uh, sometimes who are amateurs and don't know uh, don't make sure what the bees are feeding on and that it has produced poisonous honey before so it's intriguing everything in life is dangerous yeah wow 
Um, and so you're known in your books for blending horror and suspense and the supernatural. And that's true of this book as well. Could you just talk about some of the supernatural aspects of this book, the fogs and the clears and so on? Well, I, there's, you know, uh, Addison sees certain things in the, the city that uh, the people of the city never see. And uh, there are two forms, one he calls the clears and one he calls the fogs, what they really are and uh, and what uh, they're ultimately going to mean. I don't want to dance anywhere near that. Hmm. <laughs> It'll give too much away. But uh, he's, he's uh, in the midst of, uh, I, uh, I would say this takes a little bit of a horror trope, but I, I write book after book sometimes with no horror in it. And this really almost feels more to me like a uh, it comes out of a fable or a, a little bit of a magical realism uh, approach to a story like this. And uh, when I'm doing a supernatural, and it's it's in this book, it's pretty heavy. <laughs> but when I'm doing it, I'd most like to do it that it isn't something you've seen before. Uh, I I don't think I. Somebody told me I did back in the day when I wrote science fiction, and I guess in a way I did. But I've always said I've never written a vampire story, and I've never written a werewolf story. Uh, and I just, when I'm doing supernatural, I'm trying to look for some different thing to write, some new approach to it that you haven't seen before. And uh, in this book, uh, the supernatural entities are something you think you haven't seen before, but you might end up that you have because I'm approaching it from a totally different uh, different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it really struck me uh, listening to interviews with you how you've talked about how much resistance you got from publishers to blending different genre elements um, throughout your career. And I mean, these days it seems like blending genres is the thing to do. Is, do you still get that kind of resistance from publishers? No, not anymore. But when you go back to the... Uh, late 70s, early 80s, even later than that, it was uh, it was considerable resistance to it, not just from publishers, but from agents and everybody. Well, what is this and how are they going to package it and which section of the bookstore will it be stuck in? And my attitude with that was always just put it in the fiction section <laughs> and don't worry about whether it should be in mystery or horror or science fiction or whatever. Um, and But it was tremendous resistance back then and uh, I can remember when I delivered The Bad Place um, it's got horror elements to it it's got a blend of other things, it's a detective story featuring a husband and wife private eye pair sort of an update of Nick and Nora Charles for our time and uh, and at the same time there's something happened in it that's very out there and the, they, there's a moment where these characters actually end up finding themselves on an alien planet. And my publisher at that time, we were, we had been number one on the bestseller list, which first time that ever happened, my publisher in those days called me up and said, because uh, you always know 10 days ahead of the Sunday it's actually published, uh, you'll, you're going to be number one on the New York Times. And I was all excited about that. But before I could say a word, she said, but don't get too excited. It will never happen to you again. Hmm. Uh, and the reason she said that was because of the kind of books. She had several things that she thought would always keep me down. And uh, she was very wise publisher about certain things, but I didn't think wise about that. And uh, and one of them was mixing these genres. And in The Bad Place, she didn't tell me how upset she was about that little other world 
moment in it, but later some other people worked toward her with her told me she came down the hall yelling yes i'm on an alien planet <laughs> <laughs> and she felt you couldn't be number one and do this or that if there was a quality of that in the uh, in it but that's all sort of phased away over the years and um, i think the last time i got negative feedback about the way i was blending things was probably with the first odd thomas novel and uh, there was a feeling that that might be a disaster, but when it succeeded, um, then I, I stopped hearing very much of that. And and now uh, people are getting, I think they're so accustomed to it now, it's everywhere in publishing. So uh, And some things that work best are ones that blend genres. So I don't think there's that resistance anymore. Mm-hmm. Right, great. And so the book, it opens with this uh, epigraph uh, from Petrarch which goes, rarely do great beauty and great virtue dwell together. Uh, could you just talk about what that uh, statement means to you? Well, I don't want to... <laughs> that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't mean um, what it might at first appear to mean. I don't want to say what it really means to me, because that would give something away in the mm. story. But, uh, but here, is, um, here is Addison, who is no great beauty, uh, but he is... And wonderfully innocent and true, and uh, and so that quote works that way. But it works in another way once you finish the novel. Mm-hmm. How did you come across that that quote? Uh, you read a lot of stuff, and things stick in your mind over the years. When you get to be my age, you've read several thousand books. When I was young, I used to read at least two hundred novels a year. When I was trying to figure out how fiction worked, and uh, and what techniques worked and what didn't. And uh, in the early years, I couldn't always find things that I wanted or think of things I wanted. So I used to write epigraphs myself and attribute them to the book Accounted Sorrows, which was a non-existent book. And uh, and I stopped doing that because we were getting about, that, well, we were getting thousands of letters a year from people saying, where is the book Accounted Sorrows? <laughs> I can't find it. And, and I stopped doing it when I was getting so many letters from librarians who would say, uh, I spent 22 hours researching to find this book, or I spent eight oh, okay. hours. Or, and so they wanted to tell me how much time they wasted before they said they discovered it didn't exist. So I thought, uh-oh, I don't want to alienate librarians. <laughs> so we ended up eventually publishing that book so that people who wanted it could get it, but I stopped adding poems to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've heard you say that the names in your books often have special significance. Uh, is that true here? Like, particularly in particular, the name Mariah seems like it might might have some significance. Every, every name, every name to a degree in this book. Not so much in this as some others, but uh, if you look up the meanings and the sources of Gwyneth and of Addison, uh, but don't do it before that you read the book. Alarm everybody that it's not when names or other things have a subtextual meaning. It's not that people need to know what it is because it it speaks to the subconscious in a way. It's if we uh, go through life absorbing tons of stuff that, uh, you know, there's everything in my head from almost every Twilight Zone I ever watched to to uh, every Dickens novel to uh, a bunch of nonfiction I like to read and all that stuff gets packed in there and we think we forget a lot of it, but what science tells us, we really we can't access 
all of it necessarily, but it's all there and the subconscious is aware of it. And so when you're using names that may have a resonance in them because of things that a certain significant party readership might have come across, uh, it just adds something for people. Once in a while, I'll get, I had a book in which it was one of the autonomous books in which a number of the names uh, were uh, in Hebrew. They, they didn't look like Hebrew words, but they were uh, they were Hebrew words that had significance to the story. And lo and behold, I started getting a bunch of mail from Israel <laughs> by people who said, do you know that the names of some of these characters are actually words in Hebrew? Yes, that would be amazing, wouldn't it, if it happened and I didn't know it. But uh, but it's it's intriguing just to see how that much people will pick up on that kind of thing and write you about it. It's just kind of fun. Hmm. I mean, could could you talk about the character Moriah? Uh, why did you decide to include her in the story? She well, she's an integral to the story, but uh, she doesn't quite appear to be. Um, and uh, there's a number of things in the story that people will probably be reading and thinking, "Well, what's the point in that? I mean, why do we need to know about that?" But you need to know about everything. Why I put her in there? I'd rather people read the story and discovered that because almost anything I say will give away something else here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, she is, uh, she's a character who's in a coma and the authorities wanted to disconnect her from life support. And um, it seems like maybe that ties in with some of your um, feelings about the world. I've heard you talk about something that you call utilitarian bioethics. Oh, yeah. I wrote a whole novel about that. It's uh, one door away from heaven. My wife and I have worked for years, uh, probably 25 years. Uh, our foundation's primary thing it supports is... Uh, charities that uh, deal with people with severe disabilities, and uh, one of the key ones is Canine Companions for Independence, where uh, an assistance dog can revolutionize the life of one of these uh, people with everything from autism to uh, paraplegic, quadriplegic, and even to some people who are would appear to be in the next thing to a vegetative state. Uh, and it's amazing to see that the quality of their life, how it flourishes, how it unfolds when they have an assistance dog. It's a mysterious connection. Uh, for instance, there's a, a girl that we, uh, I remember vividly from one of the canine companions' graduations. She was 11 years old. She had a neuromuscular disease that closes down various pathways in the body. Uh, and once the function is lost, the medicine tells us it can never be regained because that neural pathway isn't there anymore. Uh, and this girl had developed this disease when she was seven. And by the time she came with her family to get an assistance dog, it wasn't a assistance dog that she could command because she had lost her ability to speak. Uh, there's muscles involved in everything, speech and sight. And she would eventually lose her sight, but she had lost the ability to open her hands because they had closed the neural pathway to open and flex your hands had closed and her hands were like this. And they were only open when her mother opened them to wash them every day. And she had lost the ability to walk, so she was in a wheelchair. And she came to that, uh, believe me, uh, this is a little bit of a long story, but it ties to the <laughs> thing you raised. Okay. She, when she came to the CCI for the two weeks with her family where they were going to get this dog, which was for her an assistance dog, but more than that, it was a socializing dog because 
as she loses these functions, she withdraws further and further from the world until she's eventually blind and deaf and everything. It's a horrible disease. But um, she got this dog, came for the training of the dog, and uh, they were in three or four days of the training, and one day she opened her hand so that she could pet the dog. Uh, and her parents were, they hadn't seen her open her hand in, I think it was two years. Uh, and she hadn't spoken in longer than two. Uh, and the day after she opened her hands, pet the dog, she started saying, good doggy, good doggy, which is the first words her parents had heard out of her in a long, long time. Uh, by the time she was graduating, she could walk by holding on to her mother's arm. Uh, it's, and doctors are studying this now and have been since because it's supposedly impossible. Yet the connection with the dog, which is in some way beyond our comprehension, the human dog bond, had brought a quality of life to her that she was told she could never have again. And I've seen the same thing happen with people who are very, very serious condition. So I'm very reluctant to agree with Peter Singer that you should be allowed to kill children with disabilities or kill them by not giving them um, antibiotics when they get infections. Uh, I really think people who, I've seen so many disabled people who, with the right kind of assistance, lead a quality of life that they're very happy with. It's only people who have no disabilities that look at them and say they can never have a good quality of life. And so in a sense, this girl uh, carries forward my concern about that kind of thing in this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, actually, I thought it was interesting. You said that many of these people that you've met with serious disabilities actually complain less about their lives than, you know, other people. Yet it's to the extent that I've met and gotten to know to one degree or another hundreds of people with severe disabilities, and it is always striking to me. I've never heard one of them complain. Uh, I was once head of a writer's group that uh, everybody had about 450 members, and every day I got complaints. My agent just did this to me, or my publisher just did this, and I'd been around long enough to see that anything they were complaining about had happened to me probably 10 times over. It's the nature of the world and it's the nature of the business. And none of it was really all that horrible. And sometimes the publisher was only doing, or the agent, what they had to do in order to make their profit or whatever. And uh, and the writer was perhaps being a little unreasonable. Uh, and sometimes not. And then those you, as head of an organization like that, you try to help. Uh, but we went away to one of these CCI things, uh, and it was a it was a particularly special event. And it was uh, we were away for all weekend at it. And um, when I came home, I think there were like forty some messages on my answering machine, and all but one of them were from members of this writers organization, and all but all of them were bitching about something, and. I quit. I said, you know what? These are people, I spent the weekend with people who can't walk, who some of them don't have use of legs or hands, uh, just all kinds of terrible disabilities, children with spina bifida and wheelchairs. And I don't, I didn't hear a negative word out of any of them. They just want to improve their lives and, and they were joyful in the weekend and very uh, forthcoming. And uh, so I said, you know, it's time to get everything in perspective. There's a lot worse uh, in life than having an agent who doesn't work for you, which is 
so common that, uh, <laughs> that that's not even a problem. That's just the nature of the business. But yeah, I mean, but just speaking of bad experiences with that writers have uh, with the world in general, it seems like you have had not great experiences with Hollywood, right? <laughs> and there was just a, an Odd Thomas movie that actually you were, it sounds like you were very happy with, but I was just poking around online. I can't seem to, it doesn't seem to be widely available. Yeah, I, I've met some really nice people and really dedicated people, but my experience has been that that's a smaller percent, small percentage uh, given uh, my other experiences. Um, it's every time you think something will work, it doesn't. <laughs> and, uh, it's uh, I just stand in amazement of those who've had successful or repeatedly successful experiences with Hollywood. Um, it's uh, um, like the Odd Thomas film, which Stephen Sommers wrote and directed. He called me up and uh, talked through me how he would deal with it, and he, I was so impressed with him. At that point, I had said, you know, if somebody, I told my uh, entertainment attorney that if somebody calls and they ask, are the rights to this book or that book available, don't say yes or no, just call me and tell me who they are and let me consider who they are, and then I'll decide whether they're available or not. And, uh, of course, I liked a number of Stephen's films, and when he was on the phone uh he's just a great guy and he in two hours he told me he convinced me he understood this character in the book backward and forward and um then he delivered a screenplay that when i usually when they send me the screenplay to for notes i have five different colors ink and i start with great dread i have to keep it aside for two days before i even look at it in Stephen's case, I made, I think it was four little check marks in the margin, and then I went back and crossed them out because he had answered the little question that came. It was, to my mind, a perfect screenplay. He ended up making a movie in which he, you know, edited that, some of that out and everything, but still a terrific movie. But it's, there's always something that seems to me that goes wrong, and it's amazing that you don't get that anything gets produced. So we ended up with a film that I liked. I saw it in an audience with about 500 people, and the reaction was strong in the audience to everything. It was obviously uh, the audience liked the picture. Uh, it was uh, one of these test audiences, and they scored it very high. And and then all kind of internal production issues related to nothing to do with the movie ended up getting this thing stalled in release and I don't know now exactly I understand it will get some sort of view on demand and it's supposed to go into theaters also at some point but I no longer believe anything but but um we've got a TV show based on the Frankenstein books in development and the writer on that uh, came down here for it an afternoon we had lunch and he's just a great guy and he totally gets it so i know that that could turn out to be pretty good but we'll see whether it actually gets produced that way mm -hmm. it, you just never know i i've had particularly bad luck so i just don't expect anything anymore yeah um you actually said of the odd thomas movie that you thought it might change some of the ways things are done in hollywood could you say what you meant by that i what i meant was how you approach this kind of film uh Stephen does some amazing things in this movie uh, that I'm fascinated with because they're technical. Uh, now, I've only seen the movie once in an audience with all those people. I haven't had the ability to be able to see it again. But 
I said to him after, I've never seen seen transitions done the way he does them many times in this movie. And I thought when you see how he approaches this kind of story, uh, it's different than he's ever approached it before. Uh, and it's incredibly sophisticated in its technical expertise and the cutting of scene to scene and a number of things like that. And I, that's what I meant. I thought if anybody, once they saw this and some of the things he was doing and the economical way in which he was doing things that it, and how seamless it was, that it would change the way other directors might approach this kind of scary film. But, but, Maybe I'm totally wrong about that. <laughs> I'm not wrong that he does a magnificent job, but, you know, you just never know how. It has to be out there in theaters first and succeed before it affects other people. Uh-huh. You know, I mentioned that this is primarily a, a show for science fiction fans, and I, I know that you were a, a, a big science fiction fan as a kid. Could you just talk about sort of how you got into science fiction and what role it played in your in your childhood? Well, I was, you know, I was born into a very poor household, and my dad was a violent alcoholic who held 44 jobs in 34 years, and there were periods of time that he wasn't employed by anyone, and he often punched somebody out, which is a very bad way to get a job advancement, but if it's your boss, you're punching out, and uh, so there wasn't much in the way of money, and there was no money for books, but when I was, by the time I was eight, I, I don't even know why, I was drawing telling little stories and drawing covers for them and stapling the edge and uh, peddling the relatives for a nickel. Um, and by the time I was 9, 10, I was starting to go to the library a lot. And uh, the, among the first things I read were the Robert Heinlein uh, young adult novels. And uh, I, I, I was swept away. And so for a considerable period, uh, 98% of what I read, I would say almost most of the way through college was science fiction unless I was assigned something. And then I would always try not to have to read what I was assigned, but read something I wanted. So, so I was formed by Heinlein and Theodore Sturgeon and Ray Bradbury and, uh, and all the great classic writers of the field. So by the time I was uh, starting to write for a living, that's what I was going to write. And the first short stories were science fiction stories and the novels, a lot of them weren't that good because some people are blessed with uh, an understanding of storytelling when they write their first novel. I I was fumbling for a long time, and uh, but I wrote an awful lot in the field, and a few of them I still like, and <laughs> uh, came a day when I realized that isn't what I was going to be good at, It uh, and if you're not going to be the best at it or among the best, then there's no point to go on plowing forward to do it. And that's when I started changing over to uh, suspense. And and also, uh, a comic novel was one of the first things I did and got well-reviewed, but it sold almost no copies. And then after the fact, an agent said to me, well, that's because uh, comic novels don't sell. And I said, okay, well, why didn't somebody tell me that hmm. before I actually wrote one? So... So I didn't put comedy in novels for a while. I just sold straight suspense and worked on that and developed technique. And uh, But then at one point, uh, I started to slip a little humor into it. That would have probably been with Watchers. And uh, and when it got to be more than that on some books, more than just a little, that, that was another thing some publishers didn't like. You, They would tell me, you can't have a character be funny in a suspense novel or in a scary novel. 
And I would say, why not? And they'd say, because nobody would be scared if they laugh. And I said, but in real life, we like people who have a sense of humor. Uh, they've seemed more real to us and we're more engaged with them. And, uh, and I think a character in the novel, we feel the same way about it. If he can make us laugh, uh, and he, we see his view of the world allows for humor, then we care more about the character and the fate of the character. And, but it took me a long time to, uh, to sell that theory. <laughs> yeah. Which, which of your science fiction books are the ones that you still sort of like? I like, I did a book called, um, The Flesh in the Furnace, which, uh, I, I still think I would go back and there's nothing I wrote from that period I wouldn't go back and rewrite. But, uh, but that book I remember fondly and I liked the original Demon Seat, but I eventually did completely rewrite it, write it and I liked it much better in the rewritten version. Um, and there aren't that many that I really love. <laughs> it was uh, just a field that I loved as a reader, but I was not really born to write. Hmm. I mean, you mentioned Theodore Sturgeon, and in an interview I saw you mention his short story, Bianca's Hands, and mm -hmm. I was just blown away by that story. I've never heard anyone else mention it that I can think of. Could you just, uh, I don't know how well you remember it, but could you just talk about what uh, about that story struck you so much? It's a story of obsession, uh, and, uh, and it's it's creepy in the extreme, yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, it's just I don't know. It's beautifully composed. Sturgeon fascinates me because he could write things that were just gorgeous in their composition and their the way he used the language, and then you come to a story that felt like he tore it off in three hours. Uh, fortunately, most of what he wrote was of the superior category, but uh, Bianca's hands is. You know, it's been many years since I last read it, but this, this girl who's essentially a, as I remember, she's maybe mentally disabled. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but he's, you know, he's just drawn to her by the beauty of her hands and everything. And it's, but it's, it's about fetishism and obsession and it just conveys it so incredibly well. But, uh, it's a story that sticks in your mind, uh, or, or another story of his that isn't like that, but that is a story called It. Uh, have you ever read that one? I've read all of them, but I, I don't remember which which one is that. It is the one which is the little girl. Her uh, she's uh, there's this creature that comes alive around the remains of some guy that was killed in the woods, and hasn't the body's been missing, and it it gets a spontaneous kind of life that is generated in it and it stands up in the forest and it's just one of the most scary stories I've ever read. Uh not up there with uh, a good man is hard to find by Flannery O'Connor, but but awful scary. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he just he just had that way of doing things that were different. It may be that that's it may be my admiration of Sturgeon, uh, although it's also just the way I feel about life that so many of my characters are outsiders or in one degree or another are not, you know, in the center of society. Somebody like Odd Thomas who lives on the edge of things or um, uh, Chris Snow who's, you know, can't go out in light of any kind. And um, and I don't tend to write about mesomorphs like Schwarzenegger or, uh, you know, people who have great skills with every kind of weapon imaginable. Mostly they're, I write about gardeners and fry cooks like odd or people who have mundane jobs but get caught up in extraordinary things 
and I think maybe some of that had to do with Sturgeon. Uh, do, you, do you still read uh, much science fiction these days? Uh, I don't read as much of it as I used to. Uh, for one thing, I read so much nonfiction anymore. Uh, I've always loved reading science, so I'm... Uh, if there's a new book about quantum mechanics or chaos theory or this or that, it's first on my list, and uh, uh, I find the older I get, I tend to be doing that more. I don't do it to get ideas for fiction, I don't think, uh, because I just enjoy it so much, but, uh, and sometimes history is intriguing more than uh, than fiction, so, uh, but I still, from time to time, read in the genre. Mm. Um, I mean, you mentioned that the you started this story uh, related to innocence that uh, kind of ballooned into its own novel. Uh, what's the status of that? Well, uh, I sent a couple chapters to my publisher and said, "What do you think of this?" And I got, and I never do that. I I'm always worried to let anybody see anything before it's completely finished. Uh, and but. They were expecting a story, and I said, I'm going to have to put this story aside. It's called The City. And they liked it so much that we shifted releases in a book called Secret Forest that was originally coming out next summer will come out in 2015. And this book called The City will come out next summer. And it's, I've never written, a, I, I like music, and, but I've, I realized I've never really written a book with a musician as a lead character. And that isn't why I started to write this. I just had this curious little idea, uh, and I thought it was a short story, but when I looked up, I had like a 100 pages of it, and I was nowhere close to halfway, so I realized it's going to be much bigger. And it's about a um, black musician who's about 58 when he's telling the story, and it's sort of an oral history of something that happened to him between the ages of 10 and 14. And uh, I just characters what sells novels to me as a reader and as a writer that's what carries me forward so this guy comes out of a family of musicians his father was a pianist in some of the big swing bands his grandfather rather and uh, it the more i listened to him the more i got intrigued by him and it's got an element of call it fantasy in it that's uh, uh kind of something totally different and uh started to intrigue me so let's hope it intrigues the public not <laughs> i can always learn plumbing or something uh uh so how about uh do you have other projects you want to mention or is there anything more you want to say about the is it secret forest did you say secret forest it's uh i there's a character in velocity who has she's a walk-on she has a short scene or two at the beginning of the book and then i think it's past halfway she has major seniors name was Ivy Elgin and she fascinated me because it's kind of I didn't even know what it was about her that fascinated me except that she had seemed to have a very unusual relationship with nature and that's all you tell in that book it's a, she has a big scene with the lead late in velocity uh, when he's trying to uncover this or that and she's kind of a blind alley but I got so much mail on that scene and that character, uh, and never before has a walk-on character generated thousands of letters. And I said, hmm, I guess, and people kept saying, I want to know her story. Could you write a novel about her? And I said, you know, she fascinated me too, but I don't know what the novel would be. 
So years passed, and one day when I wasn't even thinking about it, there was this idea for Ivy Elgin going on this kind of journey into strangeness. And uh, the book came together. Uh, obviously, it had been cooking in the subconscious for a long time, but it just suddenly came together. And other than that, I'm writing, well, not right now because I'm finishing the city, but as soon as I get that done, I will write the last of the autonomous books. And that I'm going to enjoy, but I'm, it's going to be dismaying too because I've, writing from Odd's point of view for me is like uh, just listening to somebody. It, it's, a, it's a joy. I laugh out loud at things he says as if I didn't write them as if I'm listening hmm. to somebody say them. So, uh, so that's, that'll be bad, but I've got a number of projects in mind. I just, who knows, you know, you plan certain projects, but as you get to the point where you're ready to write them, something else occurs to you that you might want to do more. And at that point, you you just go with whichever idea is the most intriguing of the moment. Yeah, yeah. And I guess just one last thing I wanted to mention is I was looking over your website and you have your own podcast that you do. And, you know, since obviously anyone who's listening to this is a podcast fan, uh, I just want to let people know that, you know, if they want to hear more of you, they can go check out your own podcast. Do you just want to talk a little bit about your podcast and what kind of things you cover? You know, we did that a few years ago. Uh, the Phantom uh, sent somebody here and we recorded a bunch of uh, different things, little stories, things that have happened to me. And I can't even remember <laughs> which ones I, I recorded. So uh, anybody can go there and see what they are. And they're basically all related to the writing life and stupid things I did or stupid things that were done to me or the simply stupid things that happened. So. Yeah. Well, I guess I'll re- since I just listened to him, I'll recommend the one where you talk about alien abduction uh, ah. and some of your Hollywood stories. Had me laughing out oh. loud. Uh, yeah, I can. I, well, the, some of the Hollywood stories, every time I do public speaking, I have to throw in a few Hollywood stories and uh, and I never run out of them. Uh, <laughs> so. It's uh, it's it's kind of sad, <laughs> but, uh, but it's it, on the other hand, it's 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 funny in retrospect. There's so many things in life that weren't funny at the time. Uh, sometimes these Hollywood meetings where you want to strangle everybody in it, and uh, then you you get about a day or two down the road, and it starts to strike you as very funny. So, um, it's uh, but the day may still happen when I have when I have some film project that I don't end up making a joke of <laughs> uh. <laughs> we'll see oh god yeah well uh, we certainly wish th- wish you the best of luck with that um and i think we're gonna have to wrap things up there um but we've been speaking with dean kuntz and the new book is called innocence so dean thanks uh, so much for joining us thanks for having me there you take care and that was our interview so thanks so much to dean kuntz for joining us on the show And as we mentioned, for our panel today, we'll be discussing subterranean horrors. And we're joined by two guest geeks. So first up, we've got John Langan, who we previously interviewed all the way back in episode 13. He teaches creative writing at SUNY New Paltz, and his fiction includes the novel House of Windows and the short story collection Mr. Gaunt and Other Uneasy Encounters. His latest collection, The Wide Carnivorous Sky and Other Monstrous Geographies, is out now. So John, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And also joining us today is Grady Hendricks, who you may remember from our panels on The Devil in Hell back in episode 50, Choose Your Own Adventure Books back in episode 93, and Sex and Horror back in episode 96. He's one of the founders of the New York Asian Film Festival, and author of the novels Occupy Space and Satan Loves You, 
and co-author of the comic book cookbook, Dirt Candy. So, Grady, welcome to the show. I am so excited to be here. <laughs> All right, and so as you heard in the interview in this new Dean Kuntz novel, the main character Addison lives in the sewers, and that just got me to thinking that there's a whole range of horror fiction and supernatural fiction featuring mostly monsters living in the sewers and in the earth beneath our feet. And so I thought we would just talk about some of those kinds of monsters. And uh, when you're dealing with sewers in particular, the first thing that comes to mind for me is a movie I've never actually seen. Uh, but I used to see the box for it when I would go to the video store. And it was this movie called Ghoulies. And the box featured this like monster coming up out of the toilet bowl. And I thought this was the most horrifying thing I've ever seen. Uh, it like disgusted me so much. Like it really kind of ruined my entire childhood. So I think kind of the so first that's thing. What happened. <laughs> so I think kind of the first thing I want to talk about is just like why in the name of God did anyone make a movie about monsters coming up out of your toilet bowl? <laughs> well, it does seem like a pretty monstrous place. So it's uh, you know wherever all the all the fecal matter and whatnot goes. I mean, I think it's a, a natural thing to imagine that there's all these horrible monsters down there because it's, it would be such a horrible place to ever go. Well, also, I feel like part of it is, uh, you know, you know where your door is. You know where your windows are. But, like, where do these drains go? Where does, where does all this stuff go? And, you know, it's like the alligator sewer, urban legend in New York. That sort of sprung up, I guess in the 20s or so when the city was first getting, you know, hooked up. I don't think people were having nightmares about this stuff, you know, pre-indoor plumbing. But suddenly you've got holes in your house and you don't know what can go in and out of them. And monsters can come through your toilet. Snakes do sometimes come up your toilet. It is horrifying. Hmm. No, oh, I wish I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, although actually, like, I found out years later that our, our town doesn't actually have sewers. We just have a septic tank. So. Mm -hmm. Presumably, really? Uh, yeah, so presumably no monsters are living. I don't know if there are monsters that live in septic tanks or not, but that made me feel a lot safer. Monsters even even more horrible monsters live in septic tanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to say, uh, septic tank monsters are the worst kind. Uh, <laughs> you don't, you don't want to mess with those. That, that, the sewer monsters, it's random. They may pick <laughs> your place, they may not. The septic tank monster, he's coming for you. Well, yeah, and plus he, he must hate you in particular because you're filling his house with all kinds of refuse. <laughs> yeah, 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 he knows exactly who's responsible. Um, but Grady, you mentioned this um, alligator. Is alligators, right? Myth? Yeah. Why don't you yeah. Just talk a little bit more about that if maybe people haven't heard of that? Well, the, I mean, the alligator in the, the sewer uh, legend, it's an urban legend, but, you know, I think people have probably best uh, encountered it in, I think it was Larry Cohen's movie, Alligator, about a family and the little girl wins a little baby alligator, which are cute. And, uh, you know, at the fair and, um, her dad flushes it down the toilet and it grows to enormous size and is, of course, really pissed off by what mm -hmm. happened to it, as anyone would be. But, you know, this is an urban legend. And, and from what I've heard, it stretches all the way back to like the twenties in New York that alligators live in the sewer and, you know, are hungry for human flesh and feces, I guess. Well, uh, have, you, has, have you guys read the Harlan Ellison story, Croatoan? Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. Uh, well, John Langan, why don't you talk about that? Well, yeah, it, it, what's interesting is, is that the, um, the, the alligator in the sewer story shows up in Thomas Pynchon's first novel, V, um, which, although it was published in the early 60s, is set in the mid-50s. And one of, his, uh, one of the two protagonists in that novel, uh, for a, a 
a very strange, well, it's a strange novel anyway, but one of the stranger chapters, he joins, um, he joins up with a group of public employees who are tasked with going into the sewers and killing the albino alligators who live there. Um, and it's, uh, it is, it's, it's this little kids who, uh, who got a pet alligator because they took a trip down to Florida. And uh, they came back up, and then the alligator got big and inconvenient, and so got flushed. And now there's these race of albino alligators in the sewers who, um, uh, who who are devouring the rat population. That's basically what they're living on. Interestingly, in in that novel, um, the alligators are presented in a pathetic way. They're down there in the darkness, and they may be huge, but they're basically um, they're miserable. This is a miserable, pl- a miserable place for them to live, and all they really want is to die. So they're quite happy to be shotgunned by the protagonist and his colleagues. And I, I sometimes wonder if, when Harlan wrote Croatoan, if if that something of that novel might not have been in his head as as well, because I think the the alligators in Croatoan are albino alligators as well. Although I suppose it just makes sense, right? If you had alligators living out of the the, the light, they would, you know, develop uh, or wouldn't develop uh, the appropriate pigmentation. Um, but yeah, you know, one of the things that, that, um, that I think Harlan's story is, is a particularly fierce and, and, um, and almost a, a, a moralistic story in a way. The protagonist of that story is a, is a guy who, um, who engages in casual sex with also casual unprotected sex with all sorts of women. Uh, and when they get pregnant, um, because he doesn't seem to believe in birth control, he has a couple of friends that he calls to perform abortions on the women. And then the fetuses get flushed and the, uh, those fetuses don't die. They, they meet up with the alligators and ride the alligators around. It's just, you know, sort of surreal and nightmarish. It's a, it's a horror story, surreal and, and nightmarish, uh, imagery that he, that he comes up with. Um, the guy ventures down is the latest woman whom he's he's uh, sort of coerced into having an abortion insists that he go down to the sewer and retrieve the fetus and so he agrees to humor her and then he's you know taken by the uh by the the alligator riding proto humans um and and it it's presented in this very moralistic terms this is this is payback what all these terrible things the that that he has done that he's been part of um, are all coming back to uh, in, in a wonder to get him and to and to devour him. That's like just such vintage Harlan Ellison. Um, you know, there are so few writers that can write stories the way he does, and I mean, he, he's basically unique. I mean, you, you read a Harlan Ellison story, and it's like, yes, this is Harlan Ellison. You know, but. Uh, you know, it, it was funny because that was published in the magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. And I mean, FNSF has published plenty of horror over the years, but I mean, that's such a horror story. You know, it's like it, it, I can imagine uh, someone casually picking up FNSF, uh, not really knowing what they were in for uh, when they when they turn that turn the page past the table of contents and find that as the first story in the issue. Um but I mean, like this, that story felt to me like he was definitely in like full on dangerous visions mode when he wrote that one. You know, it's like it feels very much like one of those like it would have been at home in one of those anthologies. Uh, and I mean, obviously, much of his stuff does. But that one in particular did uh, felt like that to me um, just because I mean, I can imagine. I mean, it was published in 1975. I, can, I mean, geez, uh, I mean, abortion is a touchy issue now. I mean, I, I can only imagine it was even more so back in the 70s. I'm actually curious, John, do you think as an editor that story would have been picked up today? I mean, because it's abortion, but I also think even more horrifying to an editor, it's like toilets and, and poop and all that stuff. Huh. Well, I mean, I would definitely publish it today. I, I don't know about anyone else. Um, 
And uh, if, if Harlan was uh, open to the idea of online publication, I would uh, be tempted to go reprint it in Nightmare. Um, I actually had never read it until um, just earlier, pr prior to this panel, uh, because uh, it's not in the Essential Ellison uh, for for some reason, and most uh, most of what I've read of his is in there. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, w I would definitely consider it publishable today. I mean, regardless of uh, of any of that. I mean, maybe because of that. I mean, um, I think. Uh, we always need good edgy stuff um, uh, being published, and and a lot of the horror I see isn't as as is quite as edgy as this. So, um, I mean, I'd definitely be interested in it. Do any of you guys ever read that Stephen King story where this finger comes up out of the drain? Yes. Yep. Yep. The, the, is that the, the moving, moving finger, moving finger? Or is that yeah. something else? No, that's the moving finger. Okay. It's it comes in. Uh, I think it's nightmares and dreamscapes, and it's literally the next story after. The story about the ghost who sits on the toilet. Yeah. And that's all he does. The ghost just sits there on a toilet. <laughs> it's, it's every, it's almost like Stephen King's writing a parody of himself. Wait, so you can't, cause you, so then you can't use the toilet because the ghost is sitting there? Or? Well, no, it's like, it's like the ghost is really disgusting. It's got like a pencil in its eye. And then like it's on the toilet. So whenever you go in the bathroom on the third floor of this building, you, you see its feet and you're like, Oh my God, ghost feet. And then finally a dude opens it. And he's like, Oh my God, ghost taking a poo with a pencil in its eye. And then in even more Stephen King parody territory, it turns out an evil gay man stuck the pencil in the guy's eye. It's really, it's really like, it's, it's one of the weaker stories in the book. <laughs> it feels like Stephen King's going out, what do people like criticize me about? I'm going to put all of it in a story. <laughs> right. But right. The, the, the story with the finger, it's like this, it's like this long, it's like a snake almost. And it's just like knuckle after knuckle after knuckle of this one finger. It's like, it's like a plumbing snake made out of a finger. It's a really weird story. But if you're going to talk about Stephen King, you know, it's interesting also It, you know, where, where It lives in the sewers. And what I've always thought is so interesting about that book is, you know, It lives in the sewers of Derry and it transforms into whatever your worst fears are. So for, you know, one of the kids, it's the wolf man. For one of the kids, it's a vampire. For one of the kids, it's his dead brother. But then for the girl, it is literally nothing but a voice coming from the drain and blood coming out of the drain. Like, that's it. Like, her, the visualization of her worst nightmare is a reverse drain with people in it and shooting blood at her. It's so Freudian. Hmm. I thought he was a clown. I've only seen the movie. Isn't, I thought he was a clown. Isn't he a clown in the sewer? He turns into whatever you want in the story. So it's like, sometimes he's a clown, sometimes he's a werewolf, sometimes he's a leper, sometimes he's a giant spider, sometimes he's a voice in the drain shooting blood. Uh, you know, it's sort of like whatever you fear most, he becomes. Mm. That's probably why it's called it and not like the sore clown. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I mean, you know, in the in the Dean Koontz book, uh, you know, the the character, the protagonist, this is a sort of monster who lives in the sewers, but he's also the hero of the story. And I think a lot of mon sewer dwelling monsters are actually heroes. I mean, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are the first example of that that comes to mind for me. But Doesn't uh, the Beast live in the sewer in Beauty and the Beast, the TV series? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, in the Watchmen, doesn't uh, doesn't Night mm -hmm. Owl get like like he's it's sort of sewer level that he takes his owl yeah. uh, flying owl car out through the uh, out into the world through? 
Yeah, and, and it seems like the the, the sewers are the perfect domain for a, a superhero because I can never really believe mm. that Batman or Spider-Man moves around the city without people taking his picture and following mm. him and noting everywhere he's going. Mm -hmm. But I can totally believe someone moving through the sewers and just popping out of the sewers and doing stuff and then going back to the sewers. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like that real fascination. I mean, and there's such a fascination with the Batcave. You know, I mean, like, if you read Batman ever, like... They, some writers just go more, here's the Batcave and it's got 10 miles of waterways. And I mean, it just gets bigger and bigger <laughs> and bigger. And I think there is this little kid fascination with the cave, you know, in this place you can't see. But I just want to say really quickly, sort of on this note is, you know, the other famous resident of the New York City sewer, which isn't, you know, the alligator, but is equally somewhat mythic is the mole people, you know, the, the homeless people who live underground at the sewers and the abandoned train tunnels. Uh, which, you know, turned out to be largely fabricated, but that was a huge thing for a while. Uh, actually, you know, speaking of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, though, that reminds me, uh, the, one of the first comics that really got me hooked on comics was, uh, a, a run of Spider-Man where, uh, it was called Torment. I think it was written and illustrated by Todd McFarlane, but it was where Morbius, uh, this, this doctor who, be, who becomes like a vampire through like scientific means, uh, something he had some sort of blood disorder or something like that, I think. And so Morbius is actually living in the sores and he's, uh, he's largely, uh, subsisting on, you know, the homeless, you know, the mole people, so to speak, you know, uh, the, you know, the homeless that are living in the, in the, in the sores and the train tunnels and whatnot. And so Spider-Man, uh, discovers that he's you know that the, the, all these homeless people are dying and and he goes to investigate and so he goes and and you know goes after morbius spider-man also i think in that famous storyline where he you know dies back in the 80s craven's last hunt one of the the villains is a rat person who lives in the sewers so yeah i mean but it's also a pretty natural landscape you know what i mean like in a city what kind of public spaces do you have there's rooftops there's the street and then there's underground there's a, a actually a very good vampire novel called The Light at the End, one of the first big splatterpunk novels. Um, uh, John Skip and Craig Spector uh, co-wrote it, and it's about um, it's about a guy who's kind of a, a jerk, um, and he gets turned into a vampire, and that's what he does. He roams the subways um, because there's all that darkness. Um, there's just miles and miles of darkness for him to to hang out in. Um, and you know, it's funny, I was thinking about the, the whole, you know, what about subways and other cultures has been sort of bouncing around in the back of my head. And I, I can think of, you know, the Phantom of the Opera hangs out in the, in the sewers um, mm -hmm. of Paris. And, and he certainly, I mean, I mean, he's a, he's a sort of a, a, an anti-hero kind of figure. You know, he does terrible things, but we understand that he's, you know, we understand why he's done terrible things. It's all for love, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and there's also, you know, there's a Japanese film and I can never remember the name of this film. Um, but it's um, it was shot in ten days by one of the uh, the better uh, directors between films, and it's about a guy yeah. who uh, goes into the sewers um, and and at the you start to wonder you're not really sure is this a, is this real or is it a hallucination but he he goes into the sewers and the sewers go from um, modern sewers to underground caves to eventually this vast subterranean landscape where he finds a woman that he, a, a sort of a vampiric woman uh, that he brings back to the, the surface. But yeah, that's a uh, Marabito by uh, Shinya Tsukamoto. And it's a really, those scenes of him going into the sewer are kind of amazing. I mean, it just keeps going. And he winds up in almost this, uh, it's sort of like Clive Barker in the midnight meat train. 
where it goes from this sort of like man-made underground with, you know, tunnels and concrete and railings and safety information to this sort of cyclopean, Lovecraftian, you know, pre-human underground city, uh, like in Rats in the Walls. Uh, it's an amazing movie. Dave, so you know, you meant you started this off mentioning this movie Ghoulies, uh, which you had never seen, but was about you know monsters in the sewers. And uh, have any of you guys seen this movie Chud? I mean, that, I, oh, I yeah. remember I remember that in sort of the same way that Dave, you were remembering Ghoulies. Like I remember seeing the covers of it, and I'd never seen the movie either. But I, it was also a, a movie about monsters in the sewers, right? Yeah, cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers in the sewer, to be exact. Is, is it any good, or um, I mean, do you guys want to talk about it, or is it? Uh, oh yeah, I mean, to, yeah. I, no, I love Chud. I mean, it's a great '80s horror movie. Um, but it's basically homeless people start disappearing, and who cares about homeless people except for a few people who work in shelters? And what it turns out has happened is the government has been dumping radioactive waste into the sewers of New York, and it's formed, it's turned homeless people into cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers who are eating other homeless people who live underground. Um, so, you know, it ties into this whole legacy that goes back, you know, thousands of years of this idea that, like, separate societies exist underground, that these whole tribes and communities and races of men and subhuman and uberhuman and all these things live right beneath our feet. Mm -hmm. Well, that's like, that kind of reminds me of the mutants in Futurama who all live in the, the sewers. And it's been a long time since I saw this episode, but I, as I recall, there's an episode where they, they kind of worship this giant toilet bowl and stuff gets flushed in, <laughs> stuff gets flushed into it. And then that leads to like to a different layer of the, uh, layer of the sewers and, you know, that, that they don't even know about, you know, it, it's like a, you know, it's sort of like a turtles all the way down kind of thing where there's just right, sub layer after right. sub layer of the sewers that are each their own kind of world. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, that idea has, you know, it's funny because, I mean, you, it used to be that, that caves and underground tunnels and all these things, you, we sort of think of sewers. And, and so it's got all these things with, you know, poop and, and all this stuff and filth and dirt. But caves and underground places used to be really, really spiritual. I mean, uh, um, the uh, Pythagorean cult back in ancient Greece, they would actually go down into caves and have these visions and come back up with these these mystical visions. And, you know, people believe, or Celtic legend is the the race that, that spawned the Druids, that that the Druids sort of served to some extent, all emerged from underground. I think um, the Iroquois have a, a folk tale about how they emerged from underground, the Hopi. Um, I mean, there's this huge thing that, that underground is where you go to have transcendent visions. It's where you go to, to be more spiritual. So the sewer thing is really late, and it's really an interesting sort of subversion of this, this longstanding tradition. You know, of, of that what was underground was, was, was another, uh, you know, you're not just ascending into the heavens towards God and enlightenment, but you're digging down into the earth, either towards hell or towards, you know, enlightenment. Um, in Tibetan Buddhism, Shambhala, the, the pure city of divine knowledge, uh, there's some strands of Tibetan Buddhism that say it's an underground city. Yeah, and I would, I would pick up and, and say, you know, if, if you go, you know, go to the Odyssey when uh, when Odysseus, um, where did, you know, he goes underground to talk to the dead uh, mm -hmm. to to seek wisdom. Um, and it's interesting. It seems to me that um, in one of the books of the Hebrew Bible, um, 
Saul, uh, when he goes to the witch of Endor, it's to bring up the prophet uh, Samuel, to bring up his ghost. And, and Samuel says something to the effect of, you know, why did you disturb me? I was, I was sleeping in Sheol, and the, and the, again, the, the land of the dead. This is a sort of pre-heaven-hell or whatever, or differentiation, but it's just, no, when you're dead, you go under the ground, literally, but also sort of metaphorically, to, to go to sleep. Um, you can be resurrected or, or, or woken up, I suppose. Um, and, you know, it, I think it's when you get, at least Western culture-wise, I mean, it seems to me it's when you get really something like the Aeneid, when Aeneas goes underground, when he goes to the underworld, that's when you really get an underworld. Interestingly, there's still para- paradise is still underground, but it's differentiated now. There's there's the good part of the underground and the bad part of the underground. And you don't you want to be in the in the, the Elysian fields. You don't want to be in Tartarus. Um, and then of course you know someone like Dante just takes that to an extreme. You know where this hell is this massive cone just dropping down into the center of the earth, um, and it just gets worse as you as you go down. Well, you know it's interesting because in in Mayan culture. Uh... I, 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 and I'm not up on my, my, my Mayan folklore, but I'm pretty sure the land of the dead, there was one of them. It was called, uh, Shilbaba, I think. Shilbaba. And it was a series of caves full of traps and tricks and snares, and a dog would lead you through them when you die. This dog would sort of like be hanging out, and you'd follow the dog, and there'd be all these obstacles and horrible things, and you wound up coming to this column next to a bottomless underground lake, and you would dive in, and it was sort of like the Mayan equivalent of a black hole. Like, no one knew where it came out, or when it came out, or what was at the bottom, but that was sort of where you went when you died. And what's amazing is a few years ago, uh, down on the Yucatan Peninsula, they found this series of caves. I mean, I think it was like 14 interlocking caves that, that is hell. I mean, Mayans not just talked about Chilbaba, but they had a literal Chilbaba. It was a series of caves carved full of remains, full of things that they think were traps and snares and dead ends and all these things. And some of these were completely underwater. Like the, the people who built these temples and things in these caves had to go to work. They had to like swim through these giant lightless underground lakes and come out on the other side and keep carving. And at the very end of this cave complex, there is a column that was intricately carved and there was a lake that was, they don't think infinitely deep, but extremely, I don't know what the devil, extremely deep. And so it's amazing that Mayans and, and people think that the legend came first and then the real place came second, but it's really amazing. I mean, they found all around this column at the end hundreds of human remains. And so it's this amazing idea that it wasn't just a metaphorical journey you went on to the afterlife. It was a literal journey. Wow. All right, let's bring this back to horror a little bit more because uh, I want to talk about my favorite, one of my favorite horror movies of, I don't know, the last 10 years or so was The Descent. Um, I just love that movie, so I just want to throw that out. There. <laughs> did you see? Did you see the director's cut? Because I heard that was one of those movies where the director's cut was awful. Well, I don't know. There's the there's the original British ending, and then there's mm-hmm. the screwed up by the studio American ending. And you cannot, under any circumstances, watch the American ending. You have to watch the oh. original British ending. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, I must have seen the American ending, but I, I yeah, I don't really remember it that well. I, I didn't have a chance to rewatch it for for the panel. But uh, you, do you want to? Do you want to discuss what the difference between the horrible ending is and the good ending? Uh, I guess if we're, I guess I'll give a spoiler warning. Um, 
and then I guess we can talk about it. But uh, yeah, I mean, the premise of the descent is that there, and you should go watch it. It's really good. So you know, if you haven't watched it, go go watch it now. But uh, there's a woman and her child had died, and in an attempt to sort of uh, you know cheer her up, <laughs> this is, turns out to be a bad idea. But uh, a bunch of her friends organized a caving expedition. Um, but then it turns out that they've gone to a cave system that is not really been explored before. And, uh, you know, there are monsters living in this cave system. And so in the original, the, the way the movie is supposed to go is that um, throughout the movie, she's having these visions of uh, a child handing her a cake, a birthday cake with candles on it. And then at the very end, she imagines that she's escaped from the cave and uh, that she's being handed this birthday cake and that she's been reunited with her child and, and she's smiling. And then in the last shot, we see that she's just gone crazy and there's just this guttering torch on the floor that she imagines is this birthday cake and monsters are crawling all around to, to come get her. And that's the last shot of the movie. And it's really, really creepy. So bleak. <laughs> and, then, and then in the American version, I guess, I think maybe because they, they thought they wanted to do a sequel or something, they, they sort of cut it before that happens. And right. uh, to like part of her fantasy where she's escaped from the cave. And, and then there's a sort of weird random jump scare. Um, and it just, it doesn't make any sense at all. It completely mm. undermines the entire effectiveness of the movie, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah, no, I remember that actually. And I think, uh, I think the DVD must have both endings on it. And, uh, maybe I heard about that or something. And so ended up watching both endings, but yeah, no, I definitely remember that. And you know, you're, you're right. The, uh, American ending, if that's, if, you know, you're saying that's the, that's the crappy one, but, and I have no trouble imagining that they ruined it for the American audience, but, <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that ending is definitely the crappy one. Yeah, there's actually, did you ever see the other one, um, which is sort of like a knockoff, uh, The Cave with Piper Paraboo? Huh, no. It, it's it's the same thing where sort of these cavers, they find this like, you know, tunnel into a cave in Romania and they go down and discover this degraded race of subhumanoids who live under there. Um, and it's interesting because this whole idea of these these lost races living under earth that are all degraded and horrible it's it it's sort of like i don't know i mean i guess the morlocks are hg wells's morlocks are like that but i've always thought that was sort of like a 20th century thing because usually in the past like pre turn of pre turn of the 20th century science fiction the people dwelling in the center of the earth are usually pretty awesome and and better than us and, and it's become this thing in the 20th century that I think started with sort of shaver stuff where the people in the center of the earth are all just, just lousy. Um, <laughs> but in definitely the descent, because isn't the descent there monstrous because they're all inbred and not exposed to light? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I know, I'm trying to remember the, the details of, because there's some, are, are there um, cave art or something like that that seems to, and seems to tell their story, but it's, it's, um, uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm. I'm I feel like in the, there is a scene where you get some kind of cave art that that lets us figure out. Oh, all right, you know, because I mean that's almost incidental in a, in a way. I mean the movie is. I actually thought the maybe first. It's, it's roughly a half and half movie. The first half I think is really just them in the cave system. Mm -hmm, yeah. Um, and and that is actually very creepy. That's very. Um, it's extremely claustrophobic, and 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 then the second half, um, it's kind of like Aliens, and and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean it's it's the sort of you know the roller coaster ride with all these hideous monsters, but but the women are are by no means are they are they uh, shrinking violets. I mean they're they're uh, quite willing to to fight them off. It's just that they uh, are overwhelmed by. Yeah, no, it's it's really striking because the entire cast is female and they're all really strong, active characters. You know, yeah. it's, it's a really 
in a sadly sort of unique movie in that respect. But I'm with I'm with John John Langan. I found the beginning of that movie far more horrifying. And once the monsters show up, I'm like, yeah, okay, monsters. You know, I, I can mm-hmm. handle monsters. But you know, this stuff of them caving and being in these really tight tunnels and these horrible situations, I found really, really intensely difficult to watch. Aren't two of the women? What one woman is is having an affair with another woman's husband? Yeah, it's sort of. It's a sort of secret amongst, like an open secret amongst the other members of the group, and we don't know. If uh, if if the woman whose husband it is, we don't know if she's aware that the other woman is, you know. So, so there's there's a, a tremendous amount, you know, potentially anyway. And of course, you've got the grieving uh, the the grieving mother. I can't remember if she's a widow as well. If if um, if both her family members are killed in in that accident, but but she's grieving in, in any event. So there's um, there's plenty of tension, you know. There, there, there's um, and and it could have been. I, I'm happy with the movie the way it is, but I, I can also imagine. Given that she is hallucinating those those pictures of her daughter, I mean, I can imagine something that would have been far far creepier. Just you know, going under the earth and and becoming lost and just following that child into the darkness. You know, it, it uh, not obviously not nearly enough frightening monsters, but um, uh, making use of that claustrophobic space in a, in a in a really intense kind of way. You know, I suspect we could probably come up with a whole panel of of movies that we could talk about that are these uh, sort of fifty uh, fifty movies, like John Langan said, uh, where you know they sort of start out one way and then monsters show up and it sort of becomes a different movie. Like uh, from Dustle Dawn comes to mind, but um, but I mean, I, I, yeah, but I mean, I think this that kind of movie is actually really uh, instructive for writers because. You know, one of the things that we have to consider when when you're writing genre fiction is that you have to make all of the realistic elements, you know, on point. You know, those elements have to work, you know, regardless of whatever fantastical situation you have going on. So because uh, when you have all this fanciful stuff happening, all this imaginative stuff that's going to that you're going to introduce into the story, you have to have all of the other realistic details really striking. And so I think something like The Descent does that really well, where you have the first half of the movie like really feels realistic and and scary just on, on on in a realistic way as opposed to because of monsters and then when the monsters show up it's a different kind of scary um so i i find uh, movies that do that well very interesting um i think the descent does it very well from dust till dawn is, is a case where it's like uh the monsters sort of ruin it and it was a really good uh crime movie beforehand and then it becomes a, a sort of a hackneyed uh a horror monster movie but the descent actually does it well Right, and I, and I, I like I said, I love the descent, but in general, there are, you know, there's two schools of thought on this. Is is that one is that you should establish the reality really firmly, and then it, the monsters will seem, you know, more plausible when they come in. And the other is that you should introduce the monster as soon as possible, so that we know that this is the reality mm-hmm. that we're operating under. And I'm totally in the second school. Like, I think if you're going to have a, mon- a movie about monsters, the monster, like, you know, at the very beginning, the monster should eat somebody, and then sure. we know like we're in a monster movie, and then it doesn't seem so weird if if it's been completely realistic for half the movie, and then suddenly some monsters show up. That just makes me go, wait, there's no, <laughs> this is such such thing as monsters. Right, right, right. No, I, no, I'm I'm totally in agreement there. It's like I mean, you know, just in terms of uh, introducing that so that you know up front that's what it is, even if even if it's only like a little prologue, and then you you know you segue into uh, a good half hour or whatever of of realistic stuff before the monsters show up again. But uh, you know, it's. Uh, yeah, I mean it's uh, it's it's always a tricky thing to balance. Although on the other hand, with movies, it's almost impossible for you to actually go see a movie and not know that there's going to be monsters in it because you probably would have. The probably the reason you're seeing it is because you saw a hundred trailers that gave away half the movie, including all of the great monster shots. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, this is not to get off on this too far, but I've always thought that sort of movies and this whole idea that popped up in the 70s of three-act storytelling and all this stuff is one of the worst things to happen to the horror genre. Because when you look at the older stuff like M.R. James and, and even Lovecraft to some extent, you know, the issue wasn't the people interacting with the monsters. The issue was the story was more mood and atmosphere, what's real, what's not real. And then an encounter with this guy, you see it, you just, you just see it. And that's almost enough. And it's, you know, with this, with three act structure and all this, you know, this escalating stakes and all these things. And I feel like it so undermines what horror can be so good at. And it's become very one note where almost every single, or not every single, so much horror becomes an action movie with monsters. All right. But Grady, you mentioned the Shaver mystery. And I, I did want to talk about that. Why don't you just uh, say a little bit about what that is? Well, shavers were, so... Uh, basically, Shaver mystery, it, it, it's chalked up to two people. You've got Dick Shaver, or Richard Shaver, and you've got uh, Ray Palmer, um, who the Atom was named after in comic books. And uh, what you have is, it all depends. I mean, some people say it was a hoax, and other people say that it was, uh, you know, fabricated and all this. But the story is, uh, Raymond, uh, sorry, Richard Shaver started writing letters to, was it Weird Tales or Amazing amazing, Fantasy? Amazing Stories, it was. Amazing Stories, uh, where Ray Palmer was uh, editor. And he started writing these stories in, claiming that, some people say he was writing them as a novel, some people say this was what he said really happened, that basically... It's the hollow earth theory. I mean, this goes all the way back to Haley's comet and Edmund Haley, who thought the earth was hollow and that another race lived within us. But uh, his thing he brought to it, this was in the late 40s. So as, as the UFO craze was starting, was that the earth was hollow. And basically, it was a chariots of the gods kind of situation where centuries, millennia ago, an alien race had come here. Solar radiation was bad for them. They moved into the center of the Earth, and they were very technologically advanced. But they, their galactic civilization, they lost contact with it. And so in order to provide themselves with food, some of them elected to go up on the surface where they'd have like a, a slower uh, or shorter lifespan and make food and things for the ones that lived underground. And what happened was the ones who lived underground, they had these ray machines that could affect the surface and people's moods and mind control and all this. And as their comrades on the surface died, they lost their food sources. So they began presenting themselves to humans as gods and demons and folklore monsters so that they get tribute and sacrifice paid to them. Uh, but, you know, this sort of wore out over the centuries. And using their machines and their lack of food and their inbreeding, they become this degraded race called, I think, the Darrows, D-E-R-O. So, so Dick, uh, Richard Shaver was, was writing this stuff in and Ray Palmer was basically editing it, massaging it, rewriting it and presenting it as this guy says this is true. And it became a huge smash hit in the magazine. And actually Ray Palmer, who was like, he had gotten hit by a truck or something when he was a kid. So he was basically this four foot tall dude with this very malformed spine who was apparently just this incredibly charismatic huckster. He turned this into an industry and Shaver split off and wrote more books and Palmer and he had fallings out and coming back together over time. And uh, this became this whole industry with all these believers and non-believers and cultists and people who thought it was just good fun. But it, it was a, it was a huge thing in the late forties and 
early 50s yeah, and up and through it, the 60s. And apparently it, it boosted the circulation of Amazing Stories from 100,000 to 150,000. Yeah, depending on who you on who you read. Yeah, some people are like, oh, it didn't boost all those. Like, it boosted it by hundreds of thousands, which I tend to believe it boosted it that much. And and I mean, I think that the the Hollow Earth, you know, theory has pretty much been disproven, right? Um, but I, <laughs> pretty I, much. <laughs> um, but I think it it continues. This idea of underground civilizations continues to hold the fascination because there are so few mysterious spaces left to us, right? That the whole surface of the Earth has been completely explored and. The other planets in the solar system, you know, we know there's no civilizations there, et cetera. But you can still kind of imagine these underground cities. I, I don't know if seismology and stuff is, it, I don't know if it's the case that there actually could be gigant, giant underground cities that we still haven't discovered. But certainly people believe that there could be. And, in, you know, even today, there's, you know, um, sort of descendants of the Shaver stuff with the reptoids and the gray aliens. And there's caverns under Area 51 and all this sorts of, sort of thing. Uh, but so John, but so John Joseph Adams, uh, do you have any uh, any uh, temptation to boost the <laughs> uh, circulation of light speed to 150,000? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, when you were saying that, uh, when you guys were talking about that, uh, I was thinking like, oh, those were the days when you <laughs> could uh, you could engage in shameless hucksterism, uh, you know, passing off something you know is to be lies as truth, and uh, uh, and, and you could still have a respectable magazine. But but no, I mean, uh, I mean. Even if that was still going on today, like I couldn't, I couldn't see myself possibly ever doing anything like that. Like I find, I find the whole idea of publishing stuff like that, like repugnant, you know, like, uh, like, you know, Whitley Stryber and communion, like writing an alien abduction novel and claiming it to be real. Like that's got, I mean, that to me, like, I find it so repellent. Yeah, well, I, I think in 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 Strieber's case, there there seems to have been. I, I mean, he was. I, I may be wrong about this, but I'm I'm pretty sure that he was the guy who claimed as a young man that he had been at the University of Texas, was it, when, um, oh, who was the guy who went up on the, the water tower and, and started shooting people, and he claimed that he had been present for that, and later on it turned, in fact, I wanted, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was him, because I'm pretty sure I read it in Doug Winter's Faces of Fear uh, series of interviews, and then later he admitted, well, no, that wasn't really true, and then, oh, I was abducted by aliens, well, maybe I was, maybe I wasn't. Um, uh, I, I think there's a sort of personal, I don't know what, uh, I hesitate to say pathology because I'm not a professional, um, but there's something going on there that just manifests itself time and time again. And this this needs on the part of this individual to create fictions that, that he needs to believe in, in some way. And that's, as I say, psychologically interesting. But I, I agree that, that passing those things off to people as if they're true, I mean, I suppose you can say there's a sucker born every minute. And, you know, if you're not smart enough to keep your own money, well, hmm. too bad. But I, I do think, um, yeah, ethically, I find it problematic at the least. I, I think I mentioned it on the show before, but it, it's it's actually worth mentioning in the context of uh, communion uh, that uh, Tom Dish reviewed the book. Uh, I think it was in FNSF or maybe it was somewhere else, but uh, he reviewed it and he said, if this is true, if Whitley Schreiber isn't fibbing, then this is the most important book written in the history of mankind or something like that, you know? And then uh, the publisher actually... <laughs> that quote and and put it as a blurb on the book saying this is the most important book in the history of mankind completely taking it out of context and i i just think that's awesome and awful at the same time i mean obviously it's a terrible thing to do uh but uh it kind of fits with the book you know the the fact that the book is complete fiction and is being passed off as nonfiction kind of goes hand in hand with them taking a quote completely out of context so i kind of like it in a way but it's awful 
Well, yeah, I mean, the, the consensus certainly seems to be that Ray Palmer did the Shaver mystery as a cynical hoax, but it seems to me that uh, John Campbell uh, promoted Dianetics in Astounding, uh, not as a, you know, not as a hoax that he actually, you know, was buying into it. And I, I heard, an, you know, people like, how could you, you know, how could you fall for something so silly? You know, how could someone so smart uh, and well-read uh, fall for something so silly? And one explanation I heard of that is this sort of what you're saying is that, you know, I, I think a, a certain type of personality is, is just susceptible to the appeal of having discovered the most important thing to have ever been discovered in the history of the world and be the one who brought it to light, right? And it's true, yeah, all these things, they, if, if they were true, you know, they would be the most important discovery ever made, right? It's just that they're not true, you know. Let's see, Grady, earlier when you were talking about the, was it the Mayans, I think you said, who had the underworld full of traps? Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, That was making me think of Dungeons and Dragons, right? Because oh, what sure. you do in Dungeons and Dragons, you go, go down to these tunnels full of monsters and traps and things. And I had this weird realization a couple of years ago where I've played so many computer role-playing games and pen and paper role-playing games as well that, you know, 95% of the time you're underground mm -hmm. in some maze, right? And I kind of thought like, well, there, there must be some, I, I must have spent more time staring at like moss covered brick walls, <laughs> right? Than like pretty much anything else, right? And you think that like of all the things I could have spent my childhood staring at, right? You, you know, there's like kittens and I don't know, some <laughs> stuff like that. Like, why did I choose to spend so much time staring at cavern walls, <laughs> right? I mean, I must have spent years of my life staring at cavern walls cumulatively, right? So, yeah. I mean, there must be some deep appeal to that. Does, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Well, it's adventure, right? I mean, it's, yeah. uh, uh, and I mean, I think part of the, part of the reason that it ends up happening so much in games, in role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons and whatnot is, is just, I mean, at least on the computer, uh, I imagine it was a lot easier to animate that stuff uh, back in the day. You know, nowadays, like we have things like Skyrim, it's a lot easier to have like this big open world and, you know, you could do all kinds of, um, you know, you can do all kinds of scenery and stuff and it'll look cool. But like back in the day, it was really hard to to, to make any of that look interesting. So, I mean, as, I think as, uh, you know, uh, the going down into the subterranean tunnels, it was, a uh, you know, which uh, were often uh, so, somewat nondescript to, to walk around. At least that's part of the appeal from a designer's point of view. But um, but I mean, I think for the player, I mean, you know, yeah, it's just, it's an adventure. It's scary. It's uh, it's it's got elements of uh, of all these different things in it. It's got the adventure that we want out of fantasy fiction and it's got uh, the the scary stuff that we like in horror fiction, you know, because, you know, who knows what's living in the dark. So, well, and also, Dave, you said earlier, well, could there be underground cities and all this? Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things like it is an adventure. We have no idea. I mean, Shiobaba, that the Yucatan series of caves, it was the Mayan hell. No one found that. No one had a clue it was there until the 2000s. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this temples, the temples of uh, Domenher in France. I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong. But right around the, I think it's right on the border of France and Italy or near the Alps. Um, basically, in the 2000s, there was this police raid on this sort of communal living thing in a house in the middle of a town. This was not in a field. It had a small yard in the middle of a town. The police did this raid. It was a tax evasion thing. They opened a door and walked down into a series of underground temples and caves and basically a city that is 20 times the size of Big Ben that this guy and his 12 or 13 sort of like fellow believers had dug. They'd started digging in 1978 and they just, and it's gorgeous. I mean, the, the government basically took it over and, and turned it into this giant museum. 
it, they dug this thing 20 times the size of Big Ben underneath a town. Like, and it was just a door from the kitchen that they thought went to the basement. These cops walked down, and they're in this immense underground complex. So on the one hand, it's like, oh, there's no such thing as underground cities and countries. On the other hand, there's a lot of underground under there. Uh, yeah, but, you know, I mean, speaking of uh, D&D and stuff, though, Dave, like I know in the on our script here, you have the Underdark mentioned, uh, Menzo Berenza, and, you know, the where the drow elves live, the dark elves, uh, and uh, there's this whole, you know, subterranean civilization um and and so i think uh, and i think a lot of people probably are familiar with that but um for people who haven't tried skyrim though uh there's actually a, a direct uh i mean skyrim clearly found some inspiration in in the underdark uh, uh the dwarves in in skyrim are basically extinct but they all lived underground and they have these immense immense uh ruins of civilizations that you end up going through um uh, you know, on various missions and, and they were sort of like inventors and stuff. So they, they had, they had sort of, uh, sort of steampunk type technology. Um, whereas the upper, the upper world doesn't. So it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier where, you know, uh, uh, the idea of the people who live under the earth, uh, sort of being better than us and, and, and whatnot and, and more advanced and, and that kind of thing. What's fascinating to me about, about, because I, I have not played Skyrim, although a good friend of mine plays it a lot, so I've, I've sort of seen a lot of Skyrim, if that makes any sense. And what's fascinating, I didn't know that about the Dwarven stuff, but what fascinates me is, is that it, it seems to me, of course, it's hard not to think about Tolkien and, and Moria um, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. with that. But also, you know, so many of, um, in terms of thinking about D&D behind that, you know, so much of Dungeons & Dragons, it seems to me, was was really heavily influenced by you know, Liber and Warcock and, and, of course, Robert E. Howard. And, you know, and how many Conan stories does Conan go underground? And what is he? He's going underground and he's discovering, you know, some kind of ancient civilization. Sometimes it's human. Sometimes it's reptilian, the snake men or whatever. Um, and he's, you know, fighting off monsters and maybe bringing back some treasure or, or, or what have you. And, and um, it, it often it's one of the things about both of those worlds, both Howard's world and Tolkien's world, that I find really fascinating for all their sort of surface differences is, is that there's this sense of, of tremendous antiquity in those narratives, right? And that, um, you know, that the, what we're reading about in the Lord of the Rings um, is, is only the latest in, a, in, in this history that goes back thousands, tens of thousands of years, and, and ditto in, uh, in, in Conan. Conan is, is uh, incredibly far removed from us, but he's also incredibly far removed from someone like uh, King Cull, who, who came before him. And especially for, for Robert E. Howard as an American writer living in, in the plains of Texas in the 30s, you know, a place that, um, as far as a, a European descendants go, is, is still relatively newly settled. Um, you know, he's, he's, it becomes a way of, of expressing his awareness of, of the cultures that came before him, uh, you know, indigenous cultures and, and what have you. I thought it was funny, uh, you know, speaking of Dungeons and Dragons and stuff, that they're actually, they, they introduced a monster called the Darrow uh, mm-hmm. in uh, uh, the first edition Monster Manual 2, you know, the taken D-E- from... D-E-R-O? Yeah, well, they, they 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 have it as D E R R O, but it's clearly a reference. Oh, wow. to, it's clearly a reference to the Shaver mystery because you know um, it says these Daryl makes make raids on the surface to kidnap humans for use as slaves and food, and some among them called savants possess magical and psychic powers which they can use to influence people's minds. They are said to have a main stronghold deep underground where they plot the overthrow of humanity. So it's very clearly uh, you know yeah. a reference <laughs> to the Shaver mystery. Yeah, and I mean they're basically just the the dwarven equivalent of the Drow, right? Like they live in the underdark or whatever, like uh, with the drow. 
I, I I'd never heard of them before. Or, oh, okay. I'm I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that's what they are. I mean, they're just they're just like dark dwarves. I heard somebody suggest that like every culture basically has a legend about dwarves of like stocky people who live on live in caves and stuff, and that this is some distant ancestral memory of um, Neanderthals or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone what anyone thinks about that, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, uh, what do you call it? Um, H. G. Wells thought that that, that Neanderthals gave us a, a sort of racial memory of of monsters, of trolls, or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, it it. it uh, I, uh, I'm always kind of leery of the whole racial memory thing, you know, uh, uh, peace, Frank Herbert, but uh, I'm not really sure whether I think, you know, um, could it be, you know, again, anthropologically, that if you were to go back and in the same way that you can, you know, reconstruct ancient languages, you know, sort of trace them all back to one mother tongue, you know, so if we went back to a certain point, might it be true? Uh, maybe, I guess, but... Um, Remember a few years ago when they discovered the the, the hobbits? Uh, hmm. in, uh, oh yeah, was it Indonesia, right? And everybody was so excited. And and what was funny about it was, I'd see the people were like like looking at it as, oh my god, this confirms Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no. But a few years ago, I, every fall at uh, at SUNY New Paltz, we do. Uh, a symposium on H.P. Lovecraft's works. We talk about his stuff, uh, read fiction sometimes, what have you. And and anyway, we were, um, I had a guy come up to me, this young guy, really big, muscular guy, lots of tattoos and, and uh, very, very soft-spoken. And he said to me, you know, just Lovecraft put so much thought into these things, you know, um, you know, they all kind of link up and, and, you know, don't you think maybe he was onto something? Hmm. And, you know, I just said no. Um, but... <laughs> But because I just think it's cruel to say, well, maybe no, he wasn't. He was a writer making stuff up. But, but, but there is this this desire that the to to see these fantastic structures that we love so much. No, and and I know people who think that Lovecraft is true, and it, it makes a weird kind of sense because in Lovecraft really? stories, people pick up uh, the tr- the horrible truths about these monsters in their dreams. And Lovecraft had really um, vivid dreams, so people are like, oh, well, he really was picking up truths about these awful monsters, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, uh, but no, it's not true. But anyway, um, but speaking, <laughs> but speaking of, um, Lovecraft, I mean, that makes me think of, uh, Laird Barron, who's a, a fantastic horror writer, who's a good friend of yours. And you had, uh, you had mentioned that there are some stories of his that maybe feature kind of underground, uh, images. You want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, what I was thinking of most, um, most specifically was, was Laird's first um, full-length novel, The, the Croning, um, the, the climax of which takes place underground, um, but which, uh, which throughout the novel, there are a number of, of subterranean moves, a number of moves beneath the surface. And, and um, it's a novel whose protagonist has um, gaps in his memory. Um, not just, he's, he's an older man, but it's not just, it's not as simple as Alzheimer's. It's parts of his memory have been um, repressed, have, have been, I, I, I don't want to say whited out because they're still there under the, under the whiteout. Um, if you can just scrape off the, the whiteout, you'll be able to see what it is. And of course, the things that he's forgetting are, are terrible things. Um, and, and, you know, what ultimately happens, um, his, his going beneath the surface at the, at the climax of the novel without wanting to give away too much, but his going beneath the surface re- the literal surface of the land results in uh, 
an access that's full knowledge to, to full memory. And, and it's, it's while he's in that space underground that he's also able to, a, a portal opens up where he's able to see, um, the one of Laird's inventions, this this monster or, or being called Old Leech, um, which is a uh, you know sort of a giant worm, a monster, the monstrous leech, a monstrous worm-like creature, and and of course what is a what is a worm? What is a, a you know it's a subterranean creature? Even I mean a leech is not technically subterranean, but I guess it's subaqueous, right? I mean they live they live under the water, um, but there's that use again of of you you dive under the surface and and what do you get under the surface? You, you get knowledge and, and you get um, a knowledge of the self and also a, a knowledge of the, of the universe, of the, um, of the, the greater uh, scheme of things, which is both of which are, are, are ultimately really horrifying. And, and there's, uh, you know, one of the things um, the, the novel ends with, I, I, I guess, is, is use of the question of maybe maybe ignorance really is bliss. I guess Lovecraft brings that up right at the beginning of the Call of Cthulhu where he says, Man, knowledge sucks in us. <laughs> no, it's it's he says the the the, the, it's the best thing that we don't know everything. It's the best thing that we don't know how bad things really are. And and at the climax of Laird's novel, his character gets to find out how bad things really are, and they're very bad indeed. Um have you guys heard of the Gonfeld effect? No. Uh, why don't you tell us what it is? So Gonfeld effect is basically um, this idea. Well, it's not an idea. I mean, it's, it's an actual thing where if you're exposed to a single color field, as in complete blackness or complete whiteness or complete orange or whatever you want, that what happens is you're, you're not getting any visual information in from your eyes. And those synapses keep firing, though, and they keep trying to process visual information that's not there. And, and people have done MRIs on people exposed to the Gonsell, uh, effect or the Gonsell fields, and what they, they have it is they still have visual processing going on in their brains. So um, it's, it's something that you find a lot with people who go to completely snow snowed in areas like Antarctica or high mountain regions where you get a lot of white in your visual field where it could be all white or during a whiteout. And what happens is you begin to hallucinate. It's why the Pythagoreans used to go into caves to get these transcendent visions. It's why probably we as a species believe that monsters live underground and in dark places because when we go there, we see them. All right, cool. So uh, we should probably start wrapping this up. I just had a couple things, a couple other uh, examples I want to mention quickly because I have a funny quote for Tremors. Uh, <laughs> but so, so uh, you know, the, uh, probably actually the the movie that fits this topic the best is maybe Tremors, this sort of comedy science fiction movie starring Kevin Bacon, where it's in this really small town in the middle of nowhere, and somehow they awaken these. Uh, they're basically like uh, the sandworms from Dune. And they're uh, attracted by vibrations, and they start just attacking people. And so, it's it's actually kind of a clever puzzle story where they have to figure out how to survive this this attack of these uh, uh, sandworms. But I just came across this funny quote where uh, it says that uh, you know Kevin Bacon had made a string of flops at this point, and he was convinced that this movie Tremors was going to destroy his career. Yeah. And so, it, so it says uh, Bacon suffered terrible anxiety. He admits and hit bottom, age thirty, one afternoon in New York on the corner of Eighty Sixth and Broadway. Quote. I broke down and fell to the sidewalk, screaming to my pregnant wife, I can't believe I'm doing a movie about underground worms, he recalls. 
the fact that the sci-fi comedy Tremors came to emerge as a cult classic would have been cold comfort at the time. <laughs> you don't get lower than underground worm movies. <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, it's interesting you mentioned uh, sandworms because that sort of also brings all this stuff together in science fiction. You have monsters underground who manufacture a spice that gives people transcendent vision. Mm. It, it hits all the, it hits <laughs> everything on our punch list. Well, and I mean, speaking of underground worms, actually, the other thing I wanted to mention is like, this is not a good movie at all, but Men in Black <laughs> 2. There's, uh-huh. there's one thing I really like in that, which is the, uh, the giant worms that sort of run around in the subway tunnels. And there's, there's this really funny shot in the movie where Will Smith is riding. He's trying to, um, you know, uh, get control of this giant worm that's running around in the subway tunnels. And it just like roars through this subway station and everyone's just looking at their iPhones and stuff. They don't pay any attention. And one of the things I really like about fantasy and science fiction and horror is that it, it gives this sort of magical gloss to the world where uh, mundane things remind you of movies you saw or books that you read. And now whenever I'm in a, a subway station mm. and a train just goes roaring past, I always think of that giant, those, these giant mm. worms running around in the subway tunnels and it, it kind mm. of makes me smile. Hmm. I have the exact opposite reaction. Whenever I'm on a train and like it's taking forever, I always think it's going to turn into midnight meat train. <laughs> Which is so anxiety-inducing. <laughs> uh, and, you know, just for what it's worth, uh, we would have talked about The Burrowers, uh, which is this great weird Western movie uh, b- uh, directed by J.T. Petty, but we just talked about it in our weird Western panel. So if you want to hear us talk about The Burrowers, check out that episode. Um, and, John, you uh, we mentioned that you have a, a new book out, a new collection of stories called The Wide Carnivorous Sky and Other... Uh, something geography is wait one second. Monstrous geography. <laughs> Monstrous geography. Yeah, just, the title just goes on and on. <laughs> uh, do you want to just tell us a little bit about that uh, before we let you go? Uh, sure. Yeah. It's it's um it's my uh, my newest book. Uh, several stories were published by by John Joseph Adams. It uh, often uh, often long after the deadlines for them had <laughs> passed. Um, in fact, most of the time after the deadlines had passed. Um, it's. Uh, really a series of monster stories it's it's an in each story I, I to a certain extent sat down and thought okay well vampires what can you do with those um actually in that case john had told me i'm doing a vampire anthology and i was like i'll write a story for you um and and then it was okay well how can you do something with the vampire that's not the same old same old that's not just count dracula uh whom i love dearly but you know how can you do something different and uh, there is um, at least one subterranean story in there—a story about uh, ghouls living under the uh, living under the city streets of uh, Albany, New York. Um, and um, is that, and that does case, that have a political uh, subtext? It, it probably should, but no. It's just that I hate all. I, 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 <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I went to Albany when I was a kid for for less than perfect reasons, and just had a really miserable time there. And and uh, um, but again, there, there's a sort of there's a subterranean. Actually, a couple of subterranean moments in the in the story, and in in both in in those cases, the 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 narrator of the story. It's the first one of the few first person stories uh, in the collection. The, the the narrator confronts himself in essence, like 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 in being underground, he discovers the sort of uh, the depths of his own character, um, and uh, and depths in the negative sense of the of the word. But yeah, it's it's available for Kindle. So uh, there you go. It's it's. Uh, um, yeah, there's still hard copies available. There's a beautiful cover by Santiago Caruso, who's a beautiful, beautiful artist, um, and who I'm just absolutely over the moon uh, about the the cover that he turned in. And, and there's a forward by Jeff Ford and an afterward by Laird Barron. So uh, um, 
the afterward by Laird is a scurrilous story about me, um, <laughs> which uh, is not true in the slightest. Um, so if that doesn't get people to buy the book, you know, <laughs> but I don't know what will. And, and, and if this book's a big hit, you should do a, a follow-up called like the deep carnivorous earth. And there's like, you know, and, <laughs> exactly. And the whole book would fit our panel topic today. Or it could be the, the deep vegetarian earth or something. The deep satisfied earth or something like that. <laughs> uh, it's the deep vegan earth or something. <laughs> All right. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So big thanks to John Langan and Grady Hendricks for joining us on the panel. And of course, big thanks again to Dean Kuntz for being our guest today. A special thank you as well to Leonid Levchenko and Kurt Donaldson for becoming subscribers number 61 and 62. Kurt Donaldson also became our second listener, along with Jason Lind, to be making monthly payments to the show via PayPal. That's obviously a huge help, so thank you so much to Kurt and Jason for doing that. And to see a list of all our subscribers, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on subscribe. Also, my short story, Power Armor Love Story, which originally appeared in the John Joseph Adams anthology, Armored, is now free to read online in Lightspeed magazine. On our Facebook page, listener John Katz writes, Brilliant story. Romance, time travel, and murder. What's not to like? So you can go read that now at lightspeedmagazine.com. Or if you'd prefer audio format, the story is also available as episode 272 of the Drabblecast podcast. All right, so that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, Hell, no one. Thank you for listening.